the work of the ministry in ways that we could hardly imagine. Right? Um, and, and church history is full of these things, uh, situations like that. But what you'd think would stifle the message actually has resulted in more people coming to know the Lord. And, and, not, just, and not just any people. Look at this. There are high-ranking Roman officials that are coming to Christ. Look back at the text there. These, these guys called the Praetorian Guard. Do you know what, those, what that refers to? What is that? Okay, the inner circle. Inner, inner circle. That's hard to say. Inner circle. Yes, yes, that's right. Okay, and, and what do they do? Who do they report to? Yeah, the emperor of Rome himself. This is his special guard. And, and, and you got to read between the lines and say, how does, how does the emperor's own special guard get stuck? You feel like this was, you know, these were the soldiers that did something bad, and, and this is like the, you know, the consequence. You get to go, you know, keep this guy under how this crazy Christian guy, you know, your job is to go watch him. You know, what do they do wrong to get that job, right? But yeah, the, the, this is, the Praetorian Guard re- refers to, um, the, the term actually uh, used to refer to the governor's tent, is what the term originally referred to. And then over time, as words often do, it sort of changed meaning to not refer to the location of the governor, but to the elite group of, um, I mean, these are the Navy SEALs. You understand that? This is, this, this is the elite group of guards that were particularly at the disposal and duty of the emperor himself. And we don't know exactly how they ended up coming into Paul's influence, but Paul says, I want you to know that the cause of Christ has become well known throughout this guard, this group of soldiers and to everyone else. So not just to the elite group of, of the guards, but this is like Caesar's household. This is Caesar's um, entourage. This is the, all the guys that work with This is everybody around that area. Verse 14, And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Okay. That goes a step further. Not only are people coming to know the Lord, but what else is going on because of his imprisonment? The other Christians are being emboldened to spread the gospel more. Would it be hard for you to open your mouth for Christ knowing that you might be persecuted? That it might cost you your job, or your family, your children, your friends, that you might lose any hope of whatever the end of your life looks like, whatever retirement is. I mean, that, that all that is gone if you open your mouth, potentially. And one of the things that the Lord often uses is the example of Christians that have gone before us to give us boldness. And that, that's what, the, that's what the, uh, the hall of faith in Hebrews is all about, right? That chapter in Hebrews where it talks about all these men and women who were faithful, even though some of them were sawed in half. That's in the Bible because 
there's something about seeing faithful men and women that invigorates us, that encourages us, that gives us courage and boldness to say, you know what, I'm in. And that's exactly what's going on here. We're not going to get into it right now, but in this epistle of joy, there is a backdrop of persecution. There's a backdrop of affliction. There is an internal dissension going on in this church. We'll read about it in a few weeks. And then there's an external persecution going on because Rome is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel. In fact, I was reading in one of the commentaries this week. I didn't know. This is the first time I think I've ever heard this. The Roman emperor that was in power when Philippi became a city, that Roman emperor was particularly involved in the establishment of this city, which meant that this city historically had a close tie to the emperor himself. You might, you might say that their heart was always soft toward the emperor. Okay, that's, that's the city here. That's, that's the, the state, the culture in Philippi. Well, as Rome increased, as, as the emperor, emperor upon emperor, uh, the Caesars over the years, By the time of Paul's day, the emperor was known and referred to by this title, okay, Lord and Savior, okay? Now, now these are, you know, Rome is is, is pagan, right? But, But they've got this growing sort of religious undercurrent that you're Commitment to Rome is becoming religion-like. The emperor is becoming sort of deity in our allegiance that we are supposed to show him as Roman citizens. And you know, you got the whole Greek culture with the Greek gods. You got all that mixed in too, right? And Rome has their own version of that. But but just just in a secular way, allegiance to the emperor is becoming more and more of the religion of the culture to the point that this guy walks around expecting to be referred to as Lord and Savior. Now you can imagine in that context this little church that's starting to grow and mature. And we have, as the crux of what Christianity teaches... We have another Lord and Master, another Lord and Savior, and his name isn't Caesar. That's the culture. That's what's going on here. And we'll we'll talk more about that next time. But you can see, as Paul says, some of Caesar's household is coming to faith. That's how God's using my imprisonment. And not only that, and not only that, my imprisonment, God is using to strengthen the courage of all these other Christians around me that are afraid to open their mouth and say, Sir, we cannot call you Lord and Savior because we only call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. So on your outline there, most of the believers in Rome have been so moved by Paul's example that they now have a settled newfound boldness to share the word of God. And this is where Terry happened to walk into my office at the wrong time last week because I was in the middle of translating. And every now and then, you know, know, translation work and, and, 
any of you guys do that? I mean, it's like the. Oh, yeah, that's what my English Bible says. Paul, that's what my English Bible says. You know, preaches the gospel. That's my. Okay, most translation work is pretty dull because you find out the text says what you already know it means, right? But occasionally you stumble on what I call exegetical gems, right? Occasionally you see things in looking at the text of Scripture in the original languages that, that are not as overt, they're not as obvious when you read an English translation. As my Hebrew professor used to say, reading the Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through a veil. So there you have it. That's how, that's what he thought. That wasn't, that wasn't, that was his. He was quoting an old Polish rabbi, actually, but, um, let, let me, let me see if I can read for you a, a, a translation that, that might bring, bring this out a little bit more, okay? Most of the brethren, many of the brethren have become convinced have been won over, have been persuaded for the first time because of my imprisonment. It's not like trusting, like they're trusting in the Lord, like, oh yeah, this is helping trust. The, the, the word that Paul picks and even the tense that he chooses emphasizes, as I've tried to bring out in the notes, a newfound, settled commitment to Christ. Which means, what Paul is trying to say is, as I looked around, I had a bunch of Christian fence sitters around me. But somehow in God's great wisdom, this imprisonment has resulted in a lot of those guys jumping off the fence and saying, I'm ready to preach the gospel too. I'm ready to go to prison if that's what it costs me. Those of you who know Greek, it's a a perfect verb. and, and, And a perfect verb says... An action happens, right? But then it has sort of ongoing effects into the present and into the future. And that's what he's saying. Paul says, when when they saw my testimony, when they saw that I was in prison, they heard about this, it caused them to say, I'm convinced now. Whereas previously they weren't. And that commitment, that resolution, that newfound courage, that, that commitment, that being won over, is now, is now motivating them in their ministry today. That's way over translating the word, but you get the idea, don't you? And not only that, it, it, it's convinced them to the point where now they want to show ongoing boldness in the face of danger, to, to speak the word of God without fear. And you guys read Christian biographies? I'm a big fan of Christian biographies because more than anything else, what a Christian biography does at least for me, is it causes me to be more resolved to be a faithful disciple of Christ. As I read about men and women that went through terrible and horrible things and circumstances, I can only imagine, you know, guys like George Whitfield who made dozens of trips between England and, and America. And he, and you understand, just getting on a boat in those days was, was not like, it's not like getting on an airplane where, you know, you're, you know, you're probably going to make it. This is like, you know, you might make it. You may make it, right? And not only that, he increased his possibility of survival by going all the way down to the whole of the ship where they put all the sick people. (laughs) 
Yes, yes. Yes, uh, 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 standards for cruises have increased a bit over the years. Uh, but Whitfield would go down and risk his own health every trip to minister to the women and the children in the whole of the ship that were sick. And I struggle to walk across the street and minister the gospel to my neighbor? What? You know? So read Christian biographies. I think this is a good example of that. They, they have come convinced in the Lord because of his imprisonment. Now they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, now look at this. Paul's not ignorant. He says, well, some of these guys I know are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking for me uh, to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So Paul says, I'm not at all going to be ignorant that I know not everybody around me that's preaching Christ is doing it for the right reasons. Okay, look at this. There are some believers in Rome that are bold in preaching Christ, but they do it for the wrong reasons. And he gives three sort of reasons why they might be doing it. One is that they do it out of envy. Uh, That just means jealousy, perhaps, for the same level of attention that Paul was receiving. Paul's getting a lot of attention because he's in prison. And there are other people out there preaching Christ thinking, well, maybe if I preach Christ too, they'll throw me in prison and I'll get that type of attention also. Maybe that's what it means. There are other people doing it out of strife or rivalry, perhaps in a sense competing with Paul in gospel ministry. Oh, yeah? I can do better than that. And others do it, Paul says, out of selfish ambition. And this phrase can either mean strife or contentiousness. It could be a way to sum up the envy and strife that he previously mentioned. Or it can simply mean just selfishness or selfish ambition. Some believers were seeking to cause Paul distress by pursuing gospel ministry with the wrong motive. And that's kind of the bottom line. What's what's driving these people to do ministry is to actually hurt the Apostle Paul. And you try, what's, you know, they're, they're doing it out of jealousy, they're doing it out of rivalry. And some, in sort of the sick, demented way, they're thinking, huh, Paul knows I don't buy into his theology, but I'm going to get out there and preach real hard so that when he hears about it, it it really makes him feel bad. That's how twisted gospel ministry can be by those who say they love God, but they're not doing it out of their love for God. Others proclaim Christ out of love, understanding that God specifically put Paul in prison so that he could proclaim the gospel. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting, and again, this is one of those things where um, I missed it the first time I read it in my English Bible. Look at, uh, let's pick it up in verse 15, okay? It says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. Now, Now watch this. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Okay, do you see that there? Um, what you miss, what you miss is the context in which he makes that comment. And the other thing you miss in the English is the passive nature of the verb. Okay, so let me take those, let's take them in reverse order. What he's saying is, I have been appointed. Somebody chose for me to have this ministry. 
Okay, it, it's it's a direct reference to the sovereignty of God, the will of God, the the plan of God to to give him this gospel ministry. But but the thing, the thing that you miss is the context. The context is not saying God appointed Paul as an apostle for gospel ministry in general. L- listen again. Let's listen to sort of a, a more literal Greek translation. Okay, knowing that I. Um, for the defense of the gospel, listen to this, have been put here. No lights going off, no siren. Okay, let me, let me explain that to you. He's not saying, God appointed me the gospel ministry. He's saying, God put me in prison. God is the one who ordained to put me in this gospel ministry. Well, where's that gospel ministry? In a Roman jail. You see that? And so that's why others recognize this didn't happen by accident. This is part of the wisdom and plan of God. And it's out of that understanding that God specifically put Paul in prison so that he could proclaim the gospel that is motivating them to get out there and out of love for God and love for Paul, minister the gospel. Okay, So he says, well, what then? What then? (laughs) Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Wow. That's a perspective, isn't it? That's a perspective. That even though all of that is going on, he has people that are his rivals, people that are ministering out of jealousy, people that are ministering to hurt him. He says, you know what? I don't care because the message is getting out. That's a good thing. I think in, in reading this text that there are five challenges that come out of this text. What, what, do we, what can we take home from this other than just the amazing work of God and the life of the Apostle Paul and his church? Uh, I want to walk you through five challenges that I think come out of this text. Uh, and as I call it here, they challenge us, but they also teach us about joy. Okay, Because where does he end up in all this? Joy, right? All this is going on. And the last thing he says is, I can't stop rejoicing. And we say, well, what can we learn from that? Okay? And, and, uh, well, I've put them in the form of questions. And and hopefully this will be helpful as we meditate on this uh, in the week ahead. The first question that I think this text challenges us with is this. How am I interpreting my circumstances, especially trials? Okay? Uh, one of my favorite Paul Tripp quotes. You guys know Paul Tripp, uh, the Christian counselor, writer guy? One of my favorite quotes goes like this. Quote, you are the biggest influence over you. End quote. God made us to be incessant interpreters. God made us, as part of his wiring, his design, that we always interpret things. 
And this is, this is what I think where one of Tripp's quotes is helpful. We, we don't live, we don't do things, say things, make decisions out of what's going on in life. We do it on the basis of how we're interpreting those things. Does that make sense? So how we interpret life is very, very, very important. Now, if I'm being honest with you, when I read this section of Scripture, I think I would not have this joyful outlook, probably, that Paul has if he's in prison, the church is being persecuted, he can't go on any missionary journeys anymore, he can't go and minister to people, he can't start any churches. My knee-jerk reaction would probably not be rejoicing like it is for him. And, and I think one of the challenges of this text is, how does he get there? The answer in part is, look at how he's interpreting his circumstances. Look back at the text. How's he interpreting the fact that he's in prison? What have we learned? How's he interpreting that? Not only am I, am I I'm right where I'm supposed to be, but who put me here? God did. Yeah, absolutely right. Okay. Why did he do it? To save other people. I mean, do you think, you know, we don't think, well, yeah, I'm going to go evangelize some people. Um, let's, let's go evangelize the personal guard of the emperor who's causing the persecution. Let's go do that, right? But that's exactly what Paul did. That's exactly what he did. Or that's exactly what God did uh, in putting Paul there. What's another thing that you get out of, the, how's Paul interpreting all of this? Yeah, how does how is he interpreting the actions of what we might call his enemies? Being used by God Can God use our enemies? Is God does God trip over people that aren't getting with the program? <laughs> of course not. God uses our enemies to further the gospel. There's one other thing that stands out from this text. Paul, Paul has one concern. That he is so singular in his focus, and that, that, that focus is, is what's causing all of interpreting of the circumstances around it. That one focus is his care and his concern. What is it? It's that the gospel go forward. He's not thinking about, I'm in a prison. He's not thinking about his convenience. He's not thinking about... Um, he's thinking, is the gospel moving forward? And I would suggest to you, that's a really good question. How are we interpreting what's going on? How are we interpreting a trial? Is this a trial? Sure, it's a trial. He's in prison. Where's his focus? How, what, what's, he, what's he getting caught up in? What, what, what's, what's not bothering him? What's not even an issue? All the things you think he'd be talking about if he was in prison. Here's another question I think that comes out of this text. Do I view trials as ordained strategic opportunities for the gospel? Do I view trials as ordained strategic opportunities for the gospel? That is exactly where Paul is here. He says, you know what, this isn't about me. This is about Jesus. This is about the gospel. And if God particularly put me in prison, there are strategic gospel opportunities here that I'm supposed to be taking advantage of.
Do you see that? You say, well, I'm not the Apostle Paul. Is God any less sovereign over our lives than he is over Paul's? You think about that? The the things that are inconveniences to us, the things that don't go our way, when our plans are thwarted, when when things happen that are unexpected, when all this stuff goes on and we, we just get all upset about it. And those are ordained strategic opportunities from God that will serve some gospel purpose if we'll just open our eyes. But most of the time, we're we're so caught up in complaining to God and other people about it, we miss the opportunity, don't we? That challenges me from this text. I want to live like that. I want to see life like that. Number three. Have I thought about the effect that my example can have on others? Oh, Just think for a moment if Paul was what we might call a complaining Christian. Now, I don't know any complaining Christians. I've never dealt with that personally. Um, I've heard of some. Verse 14. Most of the brethren, most of, the Greek, many of, most of, have come to a newfound resolve. They have become convinced. They have been won over in the Lord, watch it, because of my imprisonment. I don't think until we get to heaven, we will have any, any, We will never, ever realize how significant our example can be for other Christians, especially those that are younger than us, especially those that are less mature than us. Do you see that here? Do we think about the effect that our example can have on others? And, and, you know, you can think negatively. This is a positive here. Think of the influence you can have by being a faithful soldier for, for Christ. Think of that. In ways that, that you probably, you, you, we will not know until heaven and God unfolds everything for us. You know, there is, there is more at stake in how we respond to trial than just our own personal well-being, isn't there? There's a, br- a bigger, grander narrative that God is working, that he selected us, just like Paul. He puts them in place. Pull Paul, put him in prison, right? That's the picture. To, to play out in this, in, in this drama, in this unfolding of God's wisdom and plan and purpose to, to take the gospel forward. How are we doing in our assigned post? There's a fourth challenge I think comes out of this text. Do I rejoice in the good that God is always working in trials? Um, 
I have no doubt that Paul could have filled up the letter of Philippians with negative bad things that have happened in his life. Would you agree with me on that? You know, it, 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 it could have been, you know, a clip from a daytime TV show, right? It could have been that, right? Just uh, complaining and ongoing and bad things and stuff. And it, it could have been all those things. But for Paul, not only, not only does he focus on the positives, it's not even that he's, he's positive rather than negative. It's that he is, he is so convinced that God is working good in the midst of his trial. He isn't only talking about that, he's rejoicing in it. You see the difference? It's one thing to be a positive person when a trial happens. It's another thing to rejoice in your trial. And, and you understand, you, you, can't, you can't fake joy. I mean, real joy, you can't fake it. You can't, you can't manufacture it you know, synthetically and, and, and bring it and just... You can't do that. Real joy is something that comes from a heart that is really, really, really convinced that God has put us here for a reason, that my example has an effect on other people, that what God is doing is furthering the gospel... And if my eyes are open and I can see that and I can, and I want to be a part of what, do you want to be a part of what God is doing? Do you want to be a part of what God is doing in his plan? Or do you want to grade against it? Do you want to complain about it? Do you want to ask him to change the plan? Because you don't like the plan. That's what we usually do, isn't it? This is a call to say we, we can be part of what God is doing. We can, we can be a part of what God is doing to minister the gospel today. If we'll open our eyes and we will see that in all things, God is really working what? For good. Yeah. And you know, that's not just a, a verse we put on our, our bumper of our car, you know, and we, we memorize it in a wanna. That verse is a paradigm for interpreting everything that happens in our life. This is supposed to be. And the last question that I think this text challenges us with and teaches us about joy. Can I rejoice in the good God is doing even through those who hurt me. I was okay, Keith, till you said that. I know, I know. Blame Paul, because look, look, this is where he lands, okay? I want you, just don't, don't tune out on me yet. You've got to see this one more time, okay? The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, what's driving them? Look at the end of 17. Thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. They want to kick him when he is down. Okay? We're not talking about a little misunderstanding. We're not talking about a little offense. We're talking about someone who is intentionally trying to hurt somebody when they are in the midst of affliction. Paul's response, verse 18. As long as Jesus is being proclaimed through that, then I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Um, one of the first times I ever taught through a book of Scripture, I taught through Philippians. I was in Kodiak, Alaska. 
um, and I taught in a Sunday evening environment. And the title of my study was Developing a Divine Perspective. And, and this is kind of where I got that thought. Do you see that, that, you know, in a sense, you can't be from planet Earth and buy into this? This is not a normal human perspective. This is not intuitive. This is not natural. This is a supernatural, God-given vision of the way things really are. And, and, and we need to develop, as it were, a divine perspective in terms of how we think about trials and suffering and how they relate to gospel ministry. Do you want to have that divine perspective? Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul that in sharing this with the Philippians, he was really trying to teach them about what you're doing in the midst of trials and, and, and a call really to, to share this same divine perspective and how we interpret life, how we think about trials, how we think about the gospel, how we think about even our enemies. And ultimately, Father, what leads us to joy. Father, help us to see that joy comes when we have this type of divine perspective when we get what you're doing, when we're on board, when we're in agreement, when we're participating, when we're trusting in you, and we're more excited about the gospel than we are our own comfort or our own plans. Father, we need this. We need this today. Would you take uh, this example, this teaching uh, from Paul to us And would you begin to work in our hearts to be able to see life through the lens that this man saw it? With the result that not only will we have joy in our hearts, but we will be participating in the work of gospel ministry that you have foreordained for us to participate in. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the work that you're doing in us. We pray in Jesus' name.